Welcome to New Life Ministries. It can be hard to understand what God might be doing as we learn to follow him day by day. We do, however, know some of his large picture goals. In Psalm 82, we have a picture of God's concern for rightness and justice, something those in power seem to be getting wrong. Let's join Curtis as he ponders an idea. Where do justice and rightness live? Sometimes it is really hard to discern what God is doing, eh? I've said several times that culture is changing, the world is changing right now, um, and it's hard to know exactly where it's going. The Pope Francis had said, uh, we are not living in an era of change, but the change of era. And it's this question, for me, there's a question of what if the change is coming from the hand of God, and what if the change is coming just consequence of lifestyle? I was talking with my friend whose son has a mental disability, and the care that his son receives is primarily about occupying his time, just occupying his time for 40 hours a week. And we were wondering together, in another age, in another culture, would his son have been given activities to do where he could still contribute to the well-being of society and well-being of the home? within his limited capacity, instead of just having his time occupied. For example, if we lived in a, on a farm or a large farm where there was helping hands and a lot of it was uh, physical work, there would always be tasks needing to be tended to that would be within his capacity. We need a fire, you gotta collect firewood. There we go. Uh, but society is structured now that those tasks are no longer available for us. And so his son has functionally nothing to do but cannot and will not live independently. Which led me to a thought, and this is only a thought, but what if God is deconstructing some aspects of how our world works because some of our problems have grown in size beyond what can be repaired with simply altering the system? Like what if the problems have gotten so big that we can't just tweak and alter the system to make it work? The system itself needs to change and, and come down. I don't know that. Um, and the thing is, we won't know this for years, decades. We won't understand what's going on. There's been many times in biblical history where God has done something that um, people did not understand what he was getting at. So for example, when the Lord brought his people into Egypt, at a surface level, it was because there was a famine and they needed food. But the larger story was that they were being too easily influenced by the Canaanite culture that was around them. They were picking up pagan cultic practices instead of remaining faithful to the Lord. So God brought them to a place where the surrounding nation, which was Egypt, would ignore them. And in that isolation, they learned to become a cohesive unit that followed God. But they might not have understood that for a couple hundred years. Similarly, when God sent his people into exile in Babylon, they didn't exactly know why. They were still faithfully participating in worship at the temple, but their worship at the temple didn't express itself in other areas of life. And so God decided to punish his people by removing the two things they saw as the very center of their faith, the temple and the land. And he brought them away from the temple, out of the land, brought them into the land of their enemies, and said, now, be a blessing to the land of your enemy. But they wouldn't have understood it necessarily at the time, because they had prophets 
Some prophets were saying, we shouldn't be here, let's go back. And other prophets that were saying, stay where we are, this is where God wants us. And history revealed what was happening. So sometimes we don't understand what God is doing. All we can do is trust and follow. All that we can do is trust and obey. And God wants us to live in this place of trusting and obeying. What if we were to find out 30 years from now that God has been working to make the difference between being a Christian and a non-Christian larger so that we could not follow the ways of culture and expect to be a disciple? And some of you are already sort of thinking that way anyway. But what if we were to find out God was purposely making the difference larger so that we wouldn't just, oh, I go to church, I must be a Christian, but I actually live the ways of the world. We, we couldn't do that anymore. So for New Life, we're in this season of wanting to consider fresh ways to follow Jesus, to rely on him deeply to see where he's leading us because we don't understand what's going on in the world. And over the past three weeks, the first week we talked about um, insignificant acts of obedience that please Jesus, that Jesus is really happy with small, insignificant things we do that, fall, that are about obedience to him. We then looked at facing the wall that we put up towards Jesus when we're unwilling to lament and to bring him our complaint. And when we're unwilling to lament and bring him our complaint, we put a wall up between him and Je between Jesus and us, ourselves. And so we want that wall down. And then we looked at how unconfessed sin acts as a barrier between us and God. And it causes us to wither and groan. And by the simple act of confession, that wall comes down and the communication we have with God can be restored. So today, we're going to look at one of the large goals that God has for his people. And we're going to look at it through Psalm 82. So if you turn to Psalm 82, Psalm 82 is a very unusual little song. And we're going to read it twice. It's hopefully going to be on the screen. Uh, we're going to read the New Living Translation, and then we're going to read it again in the New International Version. This section of the book of Psalms are called the Songs of Asaph. And it goes from Psalm 73 to 83, and they all celebrate or they all focus on God's sovereignty, his rule over his creation. And I read that actually Psalm 82 uh, may have been used by the Levitical choir at the start of the year to remind the congregation that God is still in charge. So we're going to read it twice, and I'm going to ask you afterwards, where does the Holy Spirit draw your attention? So we'll start with the new living. Nolan, if you can pop that on the screen. Can you read that? Not bad. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They're so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I said, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Let's do the next translation. 
The Psalm of Asaph. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So where does the Holy Spirit draw your attention in those, um, in those songs? Either what line, what word kind of stood out? You rulers think you're all gods, but you're not. God is God. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. The gods know nothing, they understand nothing. The world is ruled by elites. And the elites don't understand. Nice. Lots of manipulation. That it's gotten out of hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's look at this passage and look at God's big picture goal here. God, the Lord, has gathered those who rule the earth. He has found their behavior, their values lacking and out of step with his ways. They have not lived out righteousness or rightness and justice, and the world suffers because of it. So verse 1 is interesting and very hard to understand. Who is he talking about? Who are the rulers he's condemning? So in Hebrew, it's Elohim, God, capital G, stands in the assembly of El. That's a phrase that we only encounter in Scripture here. El is the head pagan god from the land of Canaan. It's not really a name, it's more a title. It's kind of like small g god. Or the small g god who's in charge of all the pantheon of gods. So Elohim stands in the assembly of the gods. The question is, who are the gods? And there's three main ideas here, because the question is, who's guilty? The most obvious to the text is it's the pagan deities, the pagan gods from the land of Canaan. The gods that the people in the land actually worship, and the whole collection of them. That the whole collection of all these different gods have been gathered in one room, and the sovereign god is on his throne, and he pronounces judgment on them. You are not governing with justice and rightness. And you might ask, and this, this is the problem with the psalm, are there other gods other than God? Are there other gods over the land? And other parts of Scripture say, no, other gods are actually nothing. But here, the poem just carries on without actually answering our question. What's clear is that whoever these gods are, they're still subject to the one sovereign God. Another option in this text is that God is speaking about human judges and human leaders, people who govern other people. That uh, seems to be in line with how Jesus uses this song, which we'll get to in a, in a page or two. But it doesn't make sense that in verse 7 he says they will die like mortals if they are already mortals. So there's a sense of, what? What? 
doesn't make sense. Right, if they're gods. Another option is that they are divine kings. In the culture where it was written, it was not uncommon for kings and leaders to be seen as partially gods, uh, like literally sons of God or having a biological connection to a god. It seems to me what we're encountering a little bit is the art of poetry. Um, this is a poem, and poems don't have to exactly label things literally when they're trying to talk about something greater than literal. I think that's what's going on here. We don't need to know exactly who these gods are to understand this song. So imagine a throne room, let's say of King Charles, and bring to mind his throne room, his huge throne in this big room with a long, it's a long room with a tall ceiling. There's lots of red drapery. Everything is done and painted in gilded gold. There's windows along one side and the light is beaming in and it's bouncing off the gold that's making everything way too bright and shiny. And before King Charles on this throne are all the animals that represent different nations in his commonwealth. There's always an animal that represents a nation. So for Canada, our national animal is the beaver. So in his throne room is a beaver. The national animal of England is the lion. So there is a lion. The national animal of Australia is the kangaroo. So it is there. The kiwi, which is a little, it's not a fruit, it's an actual animal. So the kiwi from New Zealand is there. The tiger from India is there. All the animals from the Commonwealth are before King Charles. And the eagle from the US and the bear from Russia are in the next room because they're not part of the Commonwealth. We'll deal with them separately. King Charles looks at all the animals that represent the nations and says, you're not governing injustice. You are oppressing the poor. You're taking advantage of the fatherless. You're showing favoritism to the wicked. You're neglecting your responsibilities and the social order of the world is crumbling because of it. The poem works. We don't need to know exactly who all the animals represent. We get what the poem is saying. How would this poem speak to ancient Israel if they sang it in January of every year? Well, it would affirm that God rules. And it would affirm that God wants his planet ruled properly. And it would affirm that it's not being run properly. So it would be a very affirming, we can have confidence and yet it's not working. So before we celebrate that this song is denouncing government and giving leaders a blast, let me ask you, where does justice exist? This is a, it's a line that sits in my head. Where does justice and rightness exist? Not where does it originate from. We know that God defines what is right and what is just. But where does it live? Where does it exist? Does it exist only in the laws of the land? Is that where it lives, in our law system, in our codes? I would suggest that it has to live in us. I saw a car accident the other day. <clears throat> it was actually quite spectacular. No one was hurt. Uh, otherwise, it would not be spectacular. But one car was racing through a red light, and the other one was trying to turn. And uh, the one racing through the red light sheared off the front bumper. Like, it didn't collapse the car it sheared it right off. 
and the bumper split in two and went flying into the air, like way in the air. Um, one of those, <gasps> um, and then, you know, they, it landed and both cars slowly drove, well, one car was gone, but slowly drove away and I thought, okay, the people are okay. And then I could see that they met up to uh, exchange some numbers. But I thought, what says that that was wrong? Is it only the laws of the land that says cutting through a red light and chopping off the front of a car is wrong? Or is that what is right and just, does it exist greater other than just in the paper? Is it wrong because it's in us that it's wrong? I would suggest it exists in us, that it can't just be a concept that exists as regulations. It has to be something we live. But that phrase, where does justice exist? If it doesn't live in us, where does it live? So God speaks his peace to these gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And then in verse three, it gives us four great verbs. Defend, maintain the rights, rescue, deliver. God calls us to defend, maintain the rights, rescue and deliver because this is what he is like. We recognize humans make mistakes. And because we make mistakes, people get trapped. The person who makes the mistake gets trapped. We, by our mistakes, can trap our families, we can trap our spouse, we can trap our children. And we can trap them for generations. The message of God is not, you made your bed, now you must lie in it. The message of God is, there are second chances. There's an opportunity to change. You can be rescued. I was talking to someone on the phone. He called me up. Um, I don't know this guy. And after a big conversation, he said, do you know anybody who's gotten off the welfare system? So this guy was older, on the welfare system, was trying to get work, couldn't find work, and couldn't get the support he needed to get work. And he said, do you know anybody who's gotten off the welfare system? And I had to pause, like, uh, recently? No, I don't. I know someone a long time ago who worked their way off the system, but it just made me stop. I don't know anyone who's worked their way off the system. Now, I was talking to Jessica, and she's like, oh, I know one or two. But I thought, that's an interesting question or an interesting observation. If our systems keep people locked into the system by the way the system works, was that? They become barriers. Yeah, it's incredible. They're barriers. So in verse 5, God speaks to the crowd that is listening to this whole event. And he says, these gods are fools. And it's not that they're ignorant of what is just and righteous, but they reject it. Because they are the ones who see God clearest. They are around his throne. So they should have the best sense of what he is like and what he wants. But they don't. They've rejected it and they've gone blind and numb because of it. And as a result, the planet is not working. Uh, the foundations that God laid down for how the planet should work have become unstable. And so the psalm ends with a cry for God to make things right on his earth because it all belongs to him. All people, all lands belong to him. Please make this world right again. John Calvin said, we can beseech him to restore order what is embroiled in confusion. That's a great, embroiled in confusion. Restore order to what is embroiled in confusion. So we read in John chapter 10 that Jesus uses this song, 
and he uses it to defend his use of the term son of God as he applies that term to himself. But as if in passing, he suggests that the God in this passage are those in Israel. So in John 10, Jesus says, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he calls them gods to whom the word of God came, and then the passage goes on. So he's saying those who have received God's word are those who are in the assembly of El. They are gods because they have the closest understanding. They have the closest understanding of God and what he wants. Which means, by Psalm 82 standards, they're the most guilty for not living out rightness and justice in the world. So Jesus made this about Israel, not world leaders, not spiritual beings. Because Jesus made this about Israel because Israel was the group in closest relationship with God. So then applied to us, the people who have been restored to God through Jesus, who share in the life and death in Jesus, we are the ones most responsible for bringing justice and rightness to the earth. How can God make things right if his people do not do right. What is the essence of the gospel? The good news about Jesus. You might summarize it. I was thinking of you. You might summarize it as the essence of the gospel is to be loved by the Father. Such a Barry line. It's a good line. Because all of what we experience with God is an expression of him loving us. So we believe in Jesus the Father sent him to explain what he is like. That's an act of love. Jesus died for our sin so that we don't have sin as a barrier with God anymore. Is that it, though? No. Jesus then shares his righteous life with us so much that he gives his Holy Spirit into us, and the Spirit leads us to die to our often rebellious desires in our flesh and instead live as Jesus would live. But is that it? No. Jesus brings us into, sorry, God brings us into a community of other believers to help us live out this new life. But is that it? No. God then calls us to join him on his purposes. And your life, our life, has a purpose which gets expressed in who you are and what you do, which has almost nothing to do with your job itself. We're loved by God because our life is no longer meaningless or pointless or even finite in its impact. All of this is an expression of God's grace to us, that experience of being loved by the Father. So it's not get saved and stop. It's not get saved, get a new character and stop. It's not get saved, get a new character, become part of a new community and stop. It's get saved, get a new character, become part of a, a new human family and have mission and purpose that will impact history beyond your life. And then we get different gifts to help us do this. And some of our gifts work at building up the body of Christ. Other, other some of our gifts, that was bad grammar, others of us get gifts that help people who don't know Jesus find Jesus. Some of us get gifts to help us renew the broken systems in the world or replace the broken systems in the world. If we are the ones with a close and clear relationship with God, if we understand him best, then we have the responsibility 
to live with justice and rightness, or you could say to live as Jesus would live in the realms that we touch. So two questions to ponder. When you think about your areas of influence, the people you know, the activities you're involved with, do you side with the ways of the wicked or the way of Christ? This isn't about not spending time with people who don't know Jesus. Of course we should be spending time with people who don't know Jesus, regardless of how good or bad they may be. But when you're with people, in your behavior, in your influence, do you reflect the rightness and justice of God? Or do you live the ways of the wicked? And a second question, how do you live different because you are loved by the Father? How do you live different because you experience being loved by the Father? Let me summarize, and then I'll ask you what your attention's been drawn to. We don't know always what God is doing. We're called to trust and follow. But we do know one of his big picture goals. And Psalm 82 pictures God in the assembly of powers, those who have the clearest understanding of who he is, and he judges them for not bringing justice and rightness to the earth. Where does justice and rightness live? Is it only in law, or does it actually live in each of us? Jesus implied that it is God's people who are most responsible here. So when you consider the experience of being loved by the Father, in whatever capacity you experience that, the richness of his salvation, how does it lead you to live differently than before? When you think about your areas of influence, do you side in your behavior with the ways of the wicked? How do you live different because you are loved by the Father? So where has the Spirit sort of been drawing your attention this morning? So the thing that God's been drawing my attention to this morning was to do with, you had said something along the lines of what is right doesn't just rest outside of ourselves, it rests within us as well. I wonder whether it lies less in us specifically, more in the relationships we have with other people and with God, because if there is something in an empty room that doesn't belong to anybody, that has no effect on anybody, is using that thing or taking that thing, whether it is a stick, whether it is a beautiful something or other, that isn't hurting anybody, that isn't breaking the contract that we have made as people with other people, is that breaking rules? And I don't know, it's really complicated. But like laws are contracts that we have entered into by being part of society. We've entered into those with other people. They're part of the relationships that keep us together as a society. And so without other people, laws don't matter anymore. Interesting, yeah, interesting except the one with between us and God. But that's, I like that. that yeah. That it's very much uh, a people-to-people person. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, I like how you say that. Yeah. I like what you were saying, Curtis, about you know, being saved, and then there's more, and there's more, and there's more. 
And I think in our tradition, we have come to view salvation as a momentary event. Yeah. That I've been reading some of John Wesley, and his view of salvation was it's a process. It's a long process that all the things that we, you know, call sanctification and so on, that's part of salvation. It's not momentary. I often have said um, that we think of being saved as something like a door we walk through, but instead it's more a platform we stand on. Like we always have to be on that platform. We're always in faith. We're always engaged in the surrender to Christ, in the obedience to Christ. It's not like we walk through a door, oh, I'm saved now. No, it's a platform. Let me offer a prayer. Father, Father, this really is your planet and we are your creation. Our life is, our breath is borrowed from you. And Jesus, you have done such wonderful, mm, let me say it different. Jesus, you have given us such a clear picture of who you are and you have removed all the barriers so we really are invited into the throne room to see God clearly. And Holy Spirit, you are always working to not only correct our behavior so we don't do wrong, but you are more so leading us that we would live right and do what is just. And that we would live, um, we would live out how Jesus would live our life, what it is to be Jesus in our existence. Thank you that you give our life such meaning and value and purpose. Um, and you give us such second chances, so many second chances. Lord, thinking about Samson and what's going on in Myanmar, I, I get Leah's comment that it's easy to lose hope. Um, because, Lord, how can governments still be trying to do this? And yet, this is what's going on. Father, would you bring justice? May your kingdom come. The planet is yours. The nations are yours. Would you lead your people such that they would not only be voices for justice and rightness, but would be act living it out, would be living in a way to push against what is corrupt or manipulative or just broken. And then, Lord, please give us the strength and the courage to live out our calling. Give us, please, joy and courage and thankfulness. There is still beauty. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. New Life Ministries is located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You are invited to join our service in person or over Zoom. Please use the Contact Us link to send an email to the church office and request the address or Zoom link. If you would like to use these podcasts as part of your home church or local church gathering, you are free to do so. We do request that you let us know. If there is any other way that we can help you in your ministry, please send us an email.